Welcome to Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this COVID pandemic. I'm Joe Ramsey, your host, live streaming, Facebook, Zooming, and eventually YouTube broadcasting with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts, on the south side of Boston, five months now into this shelter in place. We are in mid-August, and for millions of people across this country, students, students-to-be, parents, and of course, educators and other staff that work in educational institutions. Late, mid to late August can be a moment of excitement, as well as a moment of nervousness, a moment of anxiety, perhaps of dread and fear, a moment of relief. And this is in a normal year. Of course, this year we're presently in 2020 has been anything but normal. And on top of and bound up with all the normal excitement and anxiety about a new school year starting, is everything related to the COVID-19 pandemic and the various social, political, and economic crises that this pandemic has stirred, exacerbated, and just plain exposed. What does this mean for educators? What does this mean for parents of children attending or planning to attend schools? What does this mean for students themselves? And more fundamentally, what does this mean for the status and the function and the mission of education from K-12 pre-K to K-12 to higher education in this COVID-19 moment. Our topic for our Shelter and Solidarity show today is Back to School Blues, the fight for a just and safe school year. And we are proud and really privileged to have with us a rich mix of guests as well as respondents who have multiple and intersecting perspectives on education today at both the K through 12 level and at the level of higher education, universities and colleges. We also have three guests, all of whom have been educators, have been activists, and have been parents of students who themselves have gone through public education, and in some cases are still going through both public K-12 and higher education. With these voices together, we hope we can welcome all of you into a deep dive into the questions that are raised by COVID and the potential opening of the school year. Questions which include, but are not limited to, what modality of education is appropriate in this moment? Many school districts are rushing, pushing educators and students back into a face-to-face -face classroom well in advance of when the, of the public health, uh, in, in contrast to what the public health 
officials around this country are advising? What are the public health implications of this moment? What should people be fighting for in terms of the conditions for which, under which they would return to the classroom? Pedagogically, as teachers, as educators, how are we planning to engage this moment? What are the opportunities to teach our students in new ways that this COVID pandemic has, has created, whatever the modality of teaching may be? We also address this moment as educators, as workers, in many cases, as unionized or union activists. Um, what are the issues that workers are facing? What are the working conditions that are changing for us? Even if our university has gone remote, what are the challenges that we now face with administrators perhaps taking advantage of this COVID crisis to push policies that are not in the interest of workers, not in the interest of, of students or teachers? So we have three great guests who are going to talk as parents, they're going to talk as activists, they're going to talk as educators. And after we hear from them, we, as always, we, on Shelter and Solidarity, we welcome you. Within 40 minutes or so, we'll be asking for your questions, your comments, your observations on the conversation and on your own experiences, whether it's in the classroom, in the community, or someone who's just following these issues of higher education with interest. I'd like to start by introducing our three guests and ask them to, to tell us a little more about them themselves as educators, as activists, as parents, and to share their perspectives on this, this kind of unprecedented moment that we're in. Uh, our first guest will be Adam Stevens. Adam Stevens is a public high school teacher. He teaches history in the Brooklyn public school system and has been doing so since 1996. He's also the parent of three children who have gone through that very same Brooklyn public school system. Adam, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Great. Thanks for having me. It's great. And I can see you've unmuted yourself, which is great. We can only see you when we hear you here on in the world of Zoom, as many of us have had to learn. Our next guest will be Amy Todd, a great colleague. And if I may say so, I consider her to be a comrade, one of the stalwart activists at UMass Boston, where I am also a professor. Amy teaches in the anthropology department, and as I mentioned, has been one of our really most consistent and, and brilliant, uh, powerful activists at UMass Boston, particularly in her representation and activism for non-tenure track faculty at UMass Boston and around the city of Boston. So Amy, it's, it's great to see you uh, in this new space. We're on Zoom together again, but this time for a different cause. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Great. Uh, last but not least, we have our, our third guest uh, who will be responding to the conversation as well, and that's Freddie Cole. Freddie is a recently retired New York public school teacher working in District 75, and who has, who's also a parent, as is Amy, I should have mentioned, of, of public school uh, attended students. Uh, and Freddie works particularly with uh, students who, who struggle with uh, developmental challenges and disabilities and he'll be talking from that perspective. So Freddie, so great to have you with us. Great, uh, thank you for having me. Okay, so Adam, let's pitch it first to you and we'll go through the, 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 the initial conversation in the order we introduced you. Adam, tell us a little bit more about you know, your, your position, uh, your situation as an educator, how you see your role in this moment, and uh, what are some of the, the threats and opportunities that you see this particular combination of, of COVID crisis and public education posing for, for educators in this moment? Yeah, um, I'm a history teacher um, in high school in Brooklyn. Um, and, um, you know, the, the threat um, is, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's an intensification of the threats that are already there. 
all right? Uh, I work in one of the most segregated urban school districts in the country. The threat of racist neglect is ever present and it has only grown. Um, and, and, and so, um, you know, I, I think that, um, uh, you know, my role um, is to, well, you know, here, I'm going to lean on a little history, all right, um, and, 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 and tell you about somebody named um, a familiar figure, uh, 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 perhaps, um, Henry Box Brown, all right. Um, Henry Box Brown, and we're talking, and you know, all in the news today, there's this, this news about the Postal Service and whether the Postal Service can be a vehicle for democracy. Um, in, 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 um, in 1849, the Postal Service was a vehicle uh, for emancipation. When Henry, uh, who was a big guy, he was uh, six feet tall, uh, packed himself into a box in Baltimore and mailed himself to Philadelphia with the help of uh, you know, abolitionist uh, conspirators and came out of the box in Philadelphia in a very dramatic fashion. There are woodcuts of it. And then he dedicated the rest of his life to traveling around um, in the ensuing 11 years before the Civil War and, and, and propagandizing and, 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 and sharing his, his, his life story. And part of the life story that he shared um, was a lesson from his mother. I'm reading, by the way, from Tara Hunter. Uh, the book is Bound in Wedlock. It's about um, Black marriage uh, in the 19th century. Um, from an early age, Brown's mother had taught him, taught him about the forced separation common amongst families of the enslaved. Quote, she would take me upon her knee and pointing to the forest trees, which were then being stripped of their foliage by the winds of autumn, would say to me, my son, as yonder leaves are stripped from off the trees of the forest, so are the children of the enslaved swept away from them by the hands of cruel tyrants. And by the time he was 15, with the death of his enslaver, his, his family members uh, uh, were just redistributed as inheritances to his slaveholders' heirs. His sisters and brothers were sent in different directions. And uh, as to the question of marriage, as a young man, knowing the pain of separation, Henry still fell in love. He found a woman, he loved her, and had three children. And, uh, and after a period of time where he, his wages were stripped from him in the promise that he would be able to buy his family out of uh, uh, servitude, uh, eventually with these compounding and impossible uh, demands, um, he saw his wife sold away from him and his children. At which point he packed himself into a box, went to Philadelphia and dedicated the rest of his life to the fight against slavery. And I want to go back to his mother, his teacher, who prepared him to live in a world where his life, his family, his loves didn't matter. And I think that the lesson that she taught him and that she taught him something about what she taught him, I will uh, uh, speculate and assume that the strength that he had to become a leader in the abolitionist movement, some of that came from the lessons of his mother and the teachings that she gave him as a child, very political teachings. 
about the world that he lived in. And I can imagine an enslaved young person who grows up without those kinds of teachings, without being prepared to face the shock and horror of a world where his life and his loves don't matter, without having been girded by those charged with his growth and development. And so, you know, listen, I'm in a school. These are not my kids. These are somebody else's kids. But they need to know, you know, they need to know from me that we live in a world which we can see all around us where the lives of working people don't matter. Not nearly enough. And 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 I need to try to be like Henry's mother to these children in my classroom, whether it's a virtual classroom or a live classroom, and prepare them for this world that they're entering into. And I think that's a tough sell. You know, I, I, I read the same story in my history department meeting yesterday, okay, with 40-something other teachers. And for us, particularly, you know, you know, having been in the school since 96, okay, a long career in the schools, it feels long. Um, um, in my generation, all right, we are perhaps the last generation who kind of believe that in America things are supposed to work out for us. We kind of believe that, like that's just kind of a thing for us, all right. And a lot of these young people, young people shaped and formed by the OA crisis and etc., they 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 don't have that view. They don't feel the same way. We risk a tremendous disconnection from them if we want to simply move forward as if everything's going to be all right when the world around us is in fact demonstrating the exact opposite and so i think it's it, but it's a hard one for, i think for teachers to say that the best education we can give our young people is to prepare them to become fighters fighters against racism fighters against capitalism fighters against a system that puts people before pro profit before people and that that is the number one lesson i think that a lot of us as educators are still well we've been made somewhat comfortable, you know, inside um, this social order. And so I think that to come out really swinging against this social order doesn't necessarily sit well. Um, um, and, 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 and we need to fight much harder to sort of get on the same page with the reality that our young people are facing. Um, um, and so, you know, fight racism. This is a world that shows us in terms of a solution. What do we need? Sure. Yeah, we need more classrooms. We need more teachers, which means we need more construction workers and more plumbers and more electricians and more engineers and architects. And, 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 and what we need is more workers. We don't need more Cuomo's. We don't need more de Blasio's. And we need a world where workers hold power. And so that's my responsibility. That's my lesson. Uh, for the year. And, uh, you know, I, I hope to, you know, I hope to, um, I hope to, 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 you know, to, to build as close and as, uh, you know, um, authentic and real a bond um, um, with, with my students and their families as I can um, this school year um, to try to, uh, to try to, um, you know, and have a stronger left core inside the working class, you know, moving forward. So that's, 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 that's what I, that's how I see this year, you know, unfolding and developing. And I hope that my content and I hope that 
you know, um, my approach and my presence, um, as much as I can be there, will, 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 will be a source of strength, I hope, for these young people in a way that I think that Henry's mother was a source of strength for him uh, 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 as he went through life and dedicated his life to something greater. Uh, yeah. So, Adam, thanks so much for that that opening. I mean, lesson in a way, right? I mean, you can tell <laughs> you, the, the history teacher, and and but you made that history very relevant to the present. And there's just a couple things I'd like to draw out of what you said before we transition to Amy and draw her into this, um, which is, I mean, I, I really like how you started by emphasizing how teachers or education doesn't principally or only certainly does not only happen in schools, right? That that parents themselves are also teachers and educators and education isn't something that's confined to schooling itself right it reminds me of that you know famous line says never let your schooling get in the way of your education right no. and, the, and the second point is that this idea that you know the the fundamental lesson i mean that your emphasis on content right there's a lot of talk right now i think quite correctly right understandably certainly about what is the form right and what is the context in which education uh, or schooling is going to occur or not Right. But I think I really appreciate you starting this conversation by putting out whatever the form or the, the context may be, there still is this question of content. And in a moment when there's a lot of talk about the threats to teachers, the threats to education, the threats to students, you've highlighted a different kind of threat, which is ironically the threat of pretending like things can continue as normal, right? A pedagogical threat of, of teachers missing a moment that we have right now, right? or a necessity, uh, you know, being blind or deaf to an imperative to connect with students who, who may already be seeing and feeling a lot more than we give them credit for a lot of the time in terms of what the nature of this world and the nature of this situation is. And that one of the biggest dangers may be failing to seize that moment uh, more, you know, not to make light of the physical dangers of COVID-19, but there's another danger, a political, pedagogical, whatever you want to call it, existential danger here for our whole mission of education that I think you have you have started with here, and I really hope that we can continue to to kind of uh, nourish and, and and develop that theme throughout the, the, the uh, today's show. Do you want to say a w another word on that before I bring it to Amy? Let's hear from Amy. I please. All right. Let's. All right. Yeah. You gave us a good starter, Amy. I mean, certainly. Uh, you know, as as Adam has has talked about, mothers can be uh, our teachers. Uh, you know, and and can be educators uh, inside as well as outside the school system. You are a person who, who wears multiple hats in this sense uh, as an educator and activist and, and a parent uh, within the public school system at, at both uh, you know, K-12 and now at, at higher ed. So, so what's your perspective on this situation that we're in what, what, as, you know, what, from those different hats that you wear? Uh, and what are the dangers or the opportunities that, that you see you know, through the lenses you're looking through? Well, first, I just want to say, as both a parent and a teacher in higher education, that um, I really appreciated Adam's introduction um, because you really convey the the intimacy of teaching and the, the importance of connecting to students and making things relevant to their experiences, and um, that's what it's all about. So my my child has just finished up high school, and I. Whenever I was able, I would go visit the high school and meet the teachers. And I have such respect and appreciation for uh, K through 12 educators, all K pre-K through 12 educators, and um, gratitude toward, uh, towards pre-K through 12 educators. Also, when I'm in the classroom and I'm talking to my students and they're remembering lessons that they, that they learned in high school and bringing them into the classroom. So, so thank you very much for that. 
Um, I'm a faculty member at UMass Boston, which is a, uh, it's in the city of Boston. So it's an urban institution. It's public, of course. Traditionally, until a few years ago when we built dormitories, it was entirely a commuter college. I actually also went there as an, as an undergraduate myself, so I'm an alum, and I've had a relationship with the campus since the 1980s. Um, more than 50% of our students are non-white, Latinx, uh, Asian, and Black in about equal parts, and um, many of our students are coming from high schools in the metropolitan area that are among the less resourced high schools, so the expenditures per, per student are on the lower side. Um, so they're coming with a lot of, of um, both advantages in terms of their uh, knowledge, their, their cultural knowledge, and, um, and some disadvantages that, uh, that you know, require, they do require some extra attention sometimes, some remedial um, uh, classes. Um, many of our students also, they live, well, the majority still live at home, even that when we built dormitories that really just accommodated, I think, a tenth of the students. So 90% live at home. Many live in multi-generational extended families. Many are working. Um, and uh, when we transitioned from on-campus to online halfway through the spring semester, all of the faculty, I'm sure Linda, Joe, and anyone else who's teaching um, who transitioned to teaching online, you learn a lot about your students. So I also learned how many of our students are working um, in essential jobs or have family members that are working in essential jobs. So um, uh, what else do I want to say? Uh, I'm also a union activist. So I've been very involved in the non-tenure, in, in fighting for non-tenure track faculty rights, both at UMass Boston, which is a public institution, and also at, at Brandeis University, University, which is a small private university in the metro Boston area where I worked, and we helped win um, a union of part-time faculty and adjunct faculty. So uh, as such, I, I kind of am in a continuously um, adversarial relationship with the administration, and I always view, um, view their choices with a lot of skepticism um, and a lot of concerns about what sort of ulterior motives are driving them. I was really one of the few choice decisions that was made that I actually applauded was when the decision was made to not return to campus in the, sp the spring semester and a fairly early June 11th announcement that we were not going to be returning to campus in September and we were going to go entirely online. So UMass Boston was one of the very first um, universities to actually make that call. Um, so since then, I've really been uh, paying a lot of attention to the news and in particular, because I was, could not visualize how higher education was going to open up, particularly universities with lots of dormitories and such, I've been really sort of obsessively following the, um, the opening plans and now the, what they're calling the opening reversals or sort of walking back of opening plans. That's beginning to kind of um, cascade. There's like closures and upon closures. So I'm watching that very carefully. Um, I, I tend to think always in worst case scenarios. In fact, I teach online, I teach on campus most of the time, but I also sometimes teach online. My original reason for learning how to teach um, college courses online was because uh, I think in worst case scenarios. So I thought if I learn how to teach online, if there's an emergency, I'll be able to keep teaching. 
but I had many, many emergencies in mind. I did not have pandemic in mind. Um, so it put me, that was one area where I had a little bit less stress than my colleagues. But um, yes, I, I agree with you, Adam, that um, whether students return to campus or go online, there's gonna be a lot of challenges that we have to think about. So I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, thank you, Amy. And I, I do hope that uh, after we hear from Freddie, maybe we can, we can cycle back and talk about some of the struggles we have had and continue to have at UMass Boston, and that I'm sure are echoed at, at many other campuses. I, I agree with you that our administration's decision, whatever their logic was, whether it was enlightened, uh, you know, enlightened, uh, you know, administrator uh, interest, uh, con concerned about the students, or if it was just that they were afraid our, our unions would have raised so much hell if they had tried to, if they had tried to put us back there face to face, whatever the reason was, I did applaud that decision, but there certainly have been some decisions that we've had to deal with through the union uh, since that we can, we can, uh, we can dig into it in a little bit, right? Moving online certainly changes the terrain of struggle. It does not eliminate the struggle we continue to face on so many fronts. But before we go there, let's, let's bring in Freddie. Freddie, um, talk to us a little bit about your perspective. I mean, you have, uh, as I understand it, recently retired. I don't know how recent you retired, but you picked an interesting moment to step out if it was, if it was this past year. But, I would, but certainly you have a, a, you know, a life of experience to draw from as you, as you, you, know, as you, as you talk to the rest of us here about you know, what, what, are, you know, what do you see as the threats and, and also perhaps the opportunities for educators, students, and parents in this, uh, as we head into this COVID fall? Yeah, well, I think, uh, I am recently retired. I retired this past July, July 1st. Um, so I'm really just recently out of the classroom. The second part of, I would say the last half of my career, I've been working in this uh, special education district with students, uh, special needs students. In addition to that, I, I was the union rep at the school. So I've had a chance to work with uh, many other uh, staff members across the district. So you learn a lot about different uh, issues that the children, you know, students and staff members are facing. Uh, and so it has really become my passion because dealing with the students who are struggling on so many levels. So imagine I'm working with a school at a school where students have been removed from every other school in the city, every other school. So they cannot attend uh, regular high school, specialized high school. They have been removed from every other school in the, in the city. And my school is the last stop for teenagers, 13, 14, 15, and so on. Sometimes they're out of school for many years. So this goes back to Adam's point that who was their teachers, you know? Their teachers quite often, unfortunately, were the streets. Uh, sometimes parents, right, who have struggled to make these students survive. But also, but when they came to our school, I found that, that these students uh, really depended on the staff at our school. No matter what level of staff you were, whether you were a paraprofessional, that's like assistant teacher, you were a staff member, you were a counselor, these students depended heavily on uh, the staff at the school. And it has become like a passion with me. So even though I just recently retired, I'm still in contact with, you know, some of my colleagues on particular students who, I, who I've built a relationship with and how I can deal with them. And I am really concerned because 
quite often, you know, it's always been the case, unfortunately, with students with disabilities, you know, have um, coming from the basement, one room or a corridor in a school, even though they've been given an entire district, they are still unthought of. When you think of education and public education, you do not think of these students, unfortunately. I'm sorry to say, they are an afterthought. And even today, I'm listening to the news. I'm listening to the chancellor speak about all of these different things or how they're gonna reopen. And that once, they will mention special ed, they will mention social and emotional learning, they will mention ELL, but they will not mention how they are going to take care and educate these students you know, uh, in class or safely. And I think it's, you know, it's a big issue because uh, these students have multiple, like all students, but these students have multiple issues that they have to deal with. And I think, uh, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier uh, when we were talking, you know, simple decisions that have to be made about students who have to have a feeding tube students who have to have speech you can't wear a mask when you're teaching speech because the student has to look at your mouth and see how you form the words so how are they going to do that there's no addressing of that nothing i've heard of. let me put it that way and so i think this is very important for us to really look at and quite frankly since they're not mentioning it i don't think they plan to do it I think they do put it students in the classroom. They're going to put the staff in there and wing it. Unfortunately, we were out of school. I think school closed at the end of March. Some of my students didn't get equipment for online learning until May, the end of May. And then when it was at end of May, they didn't have any service. So for them to decide to open the schools, you know, and without resolving any of these issues is, is, is uh, quite alarming. And it's a issue I think that we have to really confront. So uh, I think as a, you know, as a, a, a staff member who really works closely with students, because when you work with students with emotionally disturbance, for example, you must build a relationship, as, as with all students, you must build a relationship with these students and it takes time. And for students who their first issue is trust. So that doesn't happen automatically. It took me a few years to build trust with students. So, you know, someone who would come back regardless of what they did, what they said, someone who would come back is a big issue to them. And how are we gonna survive you know, how these students are going to survive in this atmosphere in public education is an issue. And I think uh, there's something that has to be discussed and addressed. Uh, so I, I hear a lot of fancy terms, you know, not here, but uh, out, you know, on the news about social emotional learning and dealing with ELL students. But I think that's, a, that's a just jargon, just jargon. They're not really addressing and getting down to the basic needs of these students. You know, how about, you know, where are they gonna eat? Where are they going to sleep, right? 50% of the students in my school are homeless or live in shelters. The shelters move, 
And so it's harder and harder for each student to get to the school. What are they going to do about busing, right? How are they going to, how are they going to social, uh, socially distance on busing? These are issues that not only uh, the staff members are bringing up, but parents are bringing up as well. Like, how are we going to do this? You know, how many different shifts and levels are you going to have in a day when students must be take a school bus to school? So I think, you know, the discussions have to continue. But like I said, you know, I, I don't want to dominate this thing about uh, the special ed students, but that has become my passion. Uh, these are the students I want to fight for. And there are more of them than we think throughout the city. Yeah. yeah, no, thank you so much for that, Freddie. I mean, I think it really helps to, to, to kind of bring us back and, and put things in perspective, right? The basic needs that must be met for people before anything, you know, highfalutin beyond that can actually mean anything, right? More than a, more than a phrase. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really curious. I mean, I actually like to hear all of your thoughts on this issue, but, um, but, I, but maybe start with Freddie and then Adam and, and Amy can, can bring, come in on it too. But Freddie, how does your perspective, your, your passion, as you say, and your, your experience in knowing the needs of these, uh, these special needs students, which are not only academic, right, but are very, you know, uh, physical, I mean, uh, have to do with issues of housing and the lack of, lack of it, the lack of um, nutritious food and, and, and the need for real hands-on attention. How does that shed light on uh, this question of modality, like how does that make you, how do you come down on the question of if the education for these students can be in, in person? It sounds like on the one hand, it seems like these students need in-person educators even more you know, than, the, the, than most students. On the other hand, there seems to be no way it can be done in a, or it seems very difficult to do it in a socially distanced, uh, you know, uh, medically safe way, right? It seems to be inherent that there would be some risk involved, but of course the risks of inaction, right? Or the risks of just putting them online, whatever that would even mean, right? Or leaving them at home or in the shelter may in fact be greater. So I'm very curious to hear how you relate to this question of, you know, the debate about, you know, face-to-face -face versus remote or hybrid learning. Does that, I mean, how does your perspective kind of intersect with that. And, and Adam, I'd love to hear your perspective too on this too. And Amy's, you both have spoken to the importance of relationship building, the importance of, you know, the kind of intimate connection, the, the, the lessons that are not simply the academic lessons, but have to do particularly dealing with working class students and people that are dealing with struggle in their life and building a real, a bond beyond just the, the curricular kind of activities. How does this kind of relate to the question of modality? Uh, you know, uh, you know, and, and frankly, what would be, I guess, the conditions that would need to be met, Freddie, you think, to give these uh, students that you're so connected to uh, what they need? What are their needs? Uh, what do we need to do to give these students uh, to meet their needs so that they can be, uh, you know, they can have the best experience possible within, within uh, so that they can learn at, at the best ability that, that, that they can? Uh, you know, what needs to be done, and, and, and I'm sure it's not just a matter of modality, but that may be one aspect of it. So I'd love to hear you speak to the modality question, and then what else maybe is missing from the kind of widespread debate about face-to-face -face versus remote, when you look at it from the perspective you're coming from? Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a hell of a question. Well, let me just say this, pre-pandemic, pre-pandemic, the students' needs were not being met, pre-pandemic right, in, in person, whatever the, the, their needs weren't met, right? First of all, students need a place to live, right? A safe place to live. 
They don't always have that. You know, they need food. I wish I could answer that question. I've been working in this district for 10 years, you know, because uh, like I said, this is the latter half of my career. And I've searched, you know, I know people who work, you know, uh, some of my colleagues, their family members uh, work with uh, ACS. That's the agency in the city that helps, you know, supposed to safeguard students and take care of them. They don't have the answers. Uh, the DOE, does not have any answers, right? And these are the experts. I wish I could tell you, I wish I had an answer uh, to that. I do know that prior to the pandemic, pre-pandemic, the needs of these students were not met, were not met, right? My, cynic, my cynical side says, as Adam says, uh, I, I don't think these children are on the radar. I don't even think most students you know, I asked a colleague one time, I said, listen, we got to get somebody up here to look at our school, you know? And I, he said, listen, nobody wants to see this. No one wants to see the students in the conditions that they live under, both in school and outside of school. They don't want to see it because this question is too difficult and it's, it's too real. So I, I, you know, I wish I had an answer. I think what we need to do is assign assign a counselor for every student. Not one for 10, 20, or 30, one for one. Will they do that? That means you have to bring resources for the, you know, for these children, and you have to think about them. But I think that is what's needed. You know, more and more students are leaving, unfortunately, leaving hospitals and coming to my school. And that means they have serious mental illness, serious, but they dump them in my school because there's no other place to put them. You know, my school could not refuse students regardless of their uh, disability. Uh, day treatment program in the city that works with students can refuse them. My school cannot. So imagine I am a teacher slash printer, you know, and I'm going to work with students who have a serious mental illness, um, it's difficult. So I'm sorry, I wish I had an answer for you, you know, or, you know, some directive of how we should approach this. I think we have to advocate, continue to fight and advocate for these children. I think we have to advocate and just say, no, you know, you're not giving these students what they need right? Online, face-to-face, -face, you're not doing that. So, you know, safely, do, do they do it safely? I'm not sure how that can be done because you're right. It's a contradiction. You need to be close to these students, but also, you know, what is safe? I think the best way to work this is to figure out, first of all, safety first. What is most, uh, what is the most safe conditions for these students? And then take it from there. So I'm sorry, I don't yeah. have <laughs> so well, I don't have us, an answer. You gave us one, which question. is pushing for to make sure that every student that has this level of need would have their own individual teacher counselor, right? right? That it wouldn't be crowded. I mean, what are the kinds of ratios that you've seen in your school? Like, the, what is the norm even pre-pandemic? What when you say that you know the ratio should be brought down to one to one? What is a typical ratio that you oh, were seeing before? It can be one to forty, one counselor to forty. Uh, most of the counselors at my school were psychologists. 
because of the issues that my students face, but even then, it's one to 40. Wow. Even I, I thought, higher. I thought you were going to no. say one to five or one to 10. No, that's, the, that's in a classroom. Really... Our classrooms are 12 one to one. That is, and then it goes lower. Eight one to one, you know, means one yeah. teacher, one assistant teacher, and eight students okay. or 12 okay. and so on. But when yeah. it comes to counseling, no. Yeah. And our students can be in constant crisis, you know, from issues that are from home, from out in the street. So I think yeah. that's what they need. They need someone to help them, you know, um, through their crisis. Right, right. So anyway, yeah. And, and for, you know, I mean, without painting too, ro ro you know, rosy a picture of what happens in public schools, for many students, it's clear that the school is a safer place than home, right? Correct. Or is a place where they can get more, you know, calor you know, more nutritious food than home or whatever. And so I think this is, you know, it, it's, you're right. It's, there's no easy answers here, but certainly the answers that we're talking about would require more resources, not less. Right. Right. Even though, I mean, in many cases, we're seeing resources cut back as a result of the way this system is responding to this pandemic. Adam, let's let you step into this and then we'll bring it over to Amy. I mean, uh, how does the, you know, the question of, I know you went right to the question of content, right? The, what's the content of the lessons that we need to teach? How do you see that, you know, your, your framework on the political kind of ethical content of yeah. teaching? How does it connect with the, the issue of modality and the conditions of that teaching that, you, that, that we actually need to, to make that? content flourish. Okay. Um, picking up from, from Freddie's, you know, observations about resources. First of all, during this entire COVID crisis, we've seen a flood of resources into the coffers of Wall Street and some of the biggest firms. You, the resources exist. And so when it comes to, and within our social organization, the resources exist for one-to-one -one counseling. They in fact do. But we live in a form of social organization where the needs of capital come first. The needs of capital come first. That is our form of social organization. And in fact, those who do have one-to-one -one resources for their children, those who do have not a lose-lose choice, because you're asking me about modality, like all virtual, in the building, that's a lose-lose choice for the working class. All right? I had, before this started, 170 students assigned to me that I saw every single day in class. All right. That was my. How situation. many was that? You said hundred and how many? One hundred and seventy. One hundred and seventy students every day. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm at a. I'm at a, a selective high school, and so probably hundred and sixty-three of them show up. It, it's. That's what it is. All right. Um. And so if I had been, if I, I would be able to offer you. My short answer to your question is, I refuse to bail out the bourgeoisie with an answer. I won't do it. Somebody else can bail them out and say, oh, it'll be better remote. Oh, it'll be better in person. I'm not doing that. Because if, they, if I had had a, a school organization where I was responsible for, say, 50 students, 40 students, then I would be able to sensitively think about what it would mean to offer some kind of meaningful online experience. And if you want to talk about who has not faced a lose-lose situation, it is the bourgeoisie and their children. They're talking about learning pods and they're going to take teachers like me who get laid off and bring us out to the Hamptons to teach their kids in the beach. Like they're going to be okay. They're going to figure something out. It's for the rest of us to sort of, you know, cobble something together. And so I, I you know, and, and, and I'm going to be damn dedicated to what I do. Having my students understand that we are now a part of something of a lost generation in terms of schooling. 
I don't think there's a, 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 you know, that's that's how I'm going to frame things and that we have to do our very best to salvage what we can of meaningful learning in this situation where we have been set up in a lose-lose choice inside of school or outside of school. So, uh, 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 um, um, sorry, you know, uh, I don't have a, a, a great, you know, uh, preference, you know, um, and, and I'll say this, my school building, all the school buildings, I suspect that the children who show up to these school buildings, if they open in New York City, which is a separate political question, which has to do ultimately with leadership of the US bourgeoisie in the world and whether any part of their social organism can function. And it's about US leadership, whether New York City schools open. It's not just about, it's a, it's a, it's a big deal. Um, um, and so, and so uh, uh, that if, if you wanna go that, in terms of geopolitics, we can take it in that direction. But I think that a lot of the calculations about whether or not we're gonna go back to the school in New York City come down to this idea that if New York can't go back to school, then the nation can't go back to school. And if the nation can't go back to school, then what does that say about US leadership, about the US ruling class's capacity to lead society? and to be a global model or anything else like that. It has to do with the world where China's on the rise. Like it's a big thing about whether my students, and so with, with all of that in view, my health, the health of young people, that's gonna be like a priority when it's about US imperialism and like leadership in the world? No, in fact. And so, and so, and so I won't prefer one or the other, but I will observe that I think that the existing patterns of racism and segregation and precarity and et cetera will mean that the young people who are risking getting on the subway every day to come to school, and by the way, the math teachers I'm gonna be struggling with to do diagrams on the floor plan of every different kind of model of New York City subway car, there's about six of them. And we should map out how many people can safely fit on a subway car. And then when you get on that train, if you have to come to school because your parents have sent you to school because they're in some kind of a job where their boss, their employer has mandated that you must get out of the house, you must go to school, those are gonna be some of the young people that are gonna be showing up at our school buildings. And so if that is the case, the question is who will be there to receive them? And I do feel obligated to be there to receive them in a context that will not be safe, but the need will persist. And, 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 and those young people who came to school, their math teachers can be teaching them, okay, if that subway car wasn't dangerous, take a picture. Let's at the end of today have 50 pictures of 50 subway cars that just weren't safe. And then let's take those 50 pictures and let's go down to the mayor's office and, we'll, and let's fight and say, what the hell, you, what, what, what is your organization? What kind of a society do you have us in? And so that it's not just about history teachers to have content that is relevant or contributes to class struggle. Rather, all of us, English teachers, science teachers for Christ's sakes. The opportunity is huge and the need is tremendous. So, um, you know, and, and, and some of those lessons can be taught virtually, some of them in the building, but I, but I, am, I, am, I am for sure that being in the building and documenting, like, like what happened in that Georgia high school where the kids were all in the hallway and the kid took a picture in the hallway and then the kid got suspended by some fascist principal who said, no, like, you know, like, don't spread our dirty laundry around the world. Listen, that kind of thing, if New York City schools go back, times 10,000. Like, that's what we need to do. 
We need to train our young people to say, look at what, look at what the rule of capital has brought us. Now let's start to think about other forms of social organization, et cetera. Yeah, Adam, thanks so much for that. No, I mean, I really appreciate the questioning of the dominant question, right? And you're, you're kind of saying the answer here, the resolution that we need isn't, isn't a matter of technology or modality, but it's a class question ultimately, right? That, that needs to be resolved in political terms, which, and, and, um, and that whatever the, the modality is, that there's, there's a struggle to be waged there, right? You know, if you're forced to be back in the classroom, then that itself creates not only dangers, though those are there, right, in a very real sense, but, but opportunities too, right? Opportunities to, to expose the system in new ways um, and, to, and to build relationships and, and to teach this lesson, this lesson of the need to fight and expose an unjust system, uh, you know, on, on whatever terrain we're on. Uh, so I think I really appreciate you pushing back on that, on that question where at least some of us were hearing so much of and, and you know, changing the question, right? But they say a, 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 a conservative answers the question one way, a liberal answers it the other, and a radical questions the question, right? So I appreciate that radical response. And also the, the emphasis on that how even something, even something like math can be very political can be very social, right? That, that, that issues of measurement and geography and trigonometry and measuring your triangles and your distances and your dividing your space, that could be a political act, right? Um, in, it's not only the social studies teacher or the, the radical literature professor or whatever, you know, that has the license or the, the, op, the duty or the opportunity to engage these social political themes, really anyone's discipline, arguably, right? I mean, we could debate this, I'm sure in some cases, but you go deep enough into it in the right way and it, and, it, and it intersects with these with these pressing life or death questions, not only about COVID, but but who controls society, uh, where the resources flow as a result of the, of that question of who controls society, and uh, and this whole question of uh, the gap between image and reality, right? Image and reality, which you know we we live under a regime that wants to maintain the image of things being normal and fine, right? For reasons of its own, right? It reminds me of like Donald Rumsfeld. Sorry, I'm ranting here. Donald Rumsfeld back in uh, during the Bush years, right, being upset about Abu Ghraib, that the images got out, right? Not that torture was happening, but that the, the images got out and that we must, we, you know, we get a crack down on the dissemination of these, of these unflattering images that undermine our, you know, hegemonic, uh, the, the America's hegemonic imperial power in the world. Not that, not that torture is actually abhorrent and that, that if an occupation requires torture, then you should stop the occupation, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, this ability to, to expose the image right? Through our classrooms, even if those classrooms aren't in the particular conditions of our own choosing. Amy, what, what do you do with this? What, what, you know, how do you, um, you know, I, I mean, you could, I mean, the question of modality was raised and then, and then the question of class inequalities too. I know we've talked a lot about public versus private institutions in our city, Boston being a particular example where private institutions are very heavily represented, right? Hun over a hundred, I think, private colleges and universities, whereas UMass Boston is the only public university. We have community colleges and a state university, but in terms of, you know, so-called research universities, we are the only one in Boston. And so this public-private question that relates to the class question is certainly something we're thinking about all the time. I don't know, there's been a lot said, Amy. How do you wanna, uh, I'll just let, let you weigh in as you would like here. Uh, there's a lot on the table. I, thank you. I, I really appreciated Freddie's and Adam's comments. They were, um, it's very interesting to hear you focusing in on something like ratios, which I think is really fundamental. Um, when asked about modalities, my response is often, it depends on, on the class size and nobody really wants to take on 
class size as a serious pedagogical question, a, an issue. Um, and this also ties into some of the activism we've been doing this summer in our union. Um, Joe and Linda and I are in a, a caucus of our union that um, talks about issues of um, adjunct or contingent non-tenure track faculty members, 300 of whom were laid off uh, at the end of the spring semester. And we've been looking at uh, class size and going sort of into the um, course catalog and sort of gathering data and looking at the data. And um, so we're, we're going online, that's a done deal. But whether going, going online is the best thing to do from a health perspective, we don't have, we don't have exactly the same issues as K, K through 12 um, because we have, our students are adults, they're young adults. So their families aren't worrying about childcare um, and other kinds of issues. But uh, the question of whether or not it's going to work for our students as learners, um, that, that's a really, it's, it's very concerning. It's very concerning to me that students are coming out of, the, out of high school, having interrupted, I saw it with my kid, their, um, their last semester of high school was interrupted and not much happened after the, the shutdown um, educationally. It was very difficult for the teachers and the students. And so they have sort of five or six months since they were actually studying and they may have been deprived of certain um, lessons and opportunities to review and so forth. So they're coming in to college with um, some catching up to do. And what they really need are small classes, small classes where the faculty can get to them, know them as individuals, give them a lot of feedback, really connect with them. And unfortunately, because we're in a financial crisis as always, um, one of the solutions was to lay off a bunch of, of uh, adjunct faculty. And one of the ways that that was managed was that some classes increase in size. Now they may have been increasing in size anyway, this has been a fight, this has been something that's been going on for decades, class size, you know, add a few students every year. Um, but the example that I think we all sort of looked at is really quite concerning is that um, remedial math classes, which are intended to help students that haven't quite got all of the high school math skills, are the class size was raised from 23 students to 35 students, and it's gonna be online. And the, fac the faculty that teach those classes are typically non-tenure track faculty who will teach up to four classes. So now you're at that 100, you have 140 students. And how do you kind of really help students with all of their array of, of learning challenges, um, not to mention all of their other challenges that they're going to have at home when the classes are quite big? I was uh, part of a K through 12, a big, K through 12 group conversation because the union we belong to is the same union that represents most public K through 12 teachers in Massachusetts. Not all of them, but many, most of them. And um, when I said something about uh, uh, 35 students, one of the um, a faculty member, I think at a community college said, oh, that's good, I have 50. And you know, that is really, uh, that is a big problem. That's, that's, to me, this class size is a bigger question. You can't, you could think about ways to make online education work, but not if it's, a, what do they call a MOOC, like these massive classes. And 
and one more thing is um, one of the classes in, at UMass Boston, which is Intro to Psychology, has uh, 250 students. So the issue, trying to visualize what is a student's experience going to be going to college for the first time, having had a big interruption in their education, and say they end up in four classes, all of which are at least, say, 35 students, and say one or two of which are 100, 250, I really think that's a suboptimal situation. And yes, the private colleges and universities in the greater Boston area, some of which I've taught at as an adjunct, they will run a class with six students. You know, that's a, that's a privilege that those students have, and, um, but not in the public institutions. So yeah. we, all, we all know why that is. I mean, I, I think powerful examples here. And again, I mean, uh, building on the, um, the point about math here. I mean, so that 23 to 35, that's about a 52% increase, right? Which maybe that could be the, the lesson on the first day of class. You know, if, 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 if these class sizes aren't reduced before the semester starts. But I mean, I'm thinking here we're on Zoom, right? And uh, I mean, I believe on Zoom, it is possible, at least in this format, to see 25 faces at once. Not, not everyone's showing their face right now. Many of you are, which I appreciate. It's always nice to have a live audience in that sense, right? But I mean, it, it goes over 25. You can't, have every, you can't have every student even in front of you, even if they have access to a computer and you know, a, a, an environment where they feel comfortable putting their camera on because you know, they don't have little siblings running in the background or something that they're that they feel they don't want to share in the back of the back of the apartment they're living in, right? I mean, the idea that uh, it seems to be the paradox here and the real potential real danger is that administration sometimes seems to think, well, that one of the values of online education is because you don't need a physical plant, right, to put people in, you can actually become more expansive with class sizes, right? You can, you can fit more people into a class because you don't need a bigger room, right? Space is all virtual. Right, but actually, you could argue that that it's even harder to connect through online modalities, right? Especially when you're dealing with, you know, uh, inequities and and people not even having the resources to to participate in the in the platform in a bit, you know, in the way that that some people might assume. So you have this real disjuncture, right, between an administration that that seems to want to push online education even before this pandemic, right, announcing a new UMass online, right where presumably their business model can be more profitable, right? A kind of cash cow modeling some of the private universities that have made a bundle through online education. But pedagogically, this issue of class size, you know, persists, right? And, if, and for those of us who think it's, that education is not just about information delivery, right? Or workforce certification, but actually building relationships that can be meaningful, then that can actually model ways of being in the world that will actually connect with students' lives. I mean, How's that going to happen in a, in a class of 50, you know, in an intro class? How's that going to, you know, happen, at, frankly, at 35? It, it just, uh, I mean, this is such a question, more of a, another rant here, but I do think class size seems to be fundamental. So I guess maybe we could turn a little bit and, and, and ask, you know, what can we do? I mean, it seems like one of the themes here from, from Freddie, um, you know, from Adam and from Amy is about class size. Class size is fundamental, right? Freddie talking about the need for one-to-one -one ratios, not 40-to-one right? Adam talking about uh, not 160 or 170 students, but 50 or 40, right? And now we're talking about uh, UMass Boston issues around class size. What can we do to, to raise up this struggle around class size, around ratios in maybe a way it hasn't, that hasn't been done yet? What, what, what can we do 
uh, what do we need? I mean, what, what, what would we say, I mean, to the different constituencies and audiences that we can, we can speak to, to our fellow teachers, to our union representatives, some of us are union reps, you know, this is the union is not out there. What about administrators? What about the community, the broader community? What about the, the people in state power? You know, uh, how, do we, how do we raise up this issue of class size? Um, does anyone want to speak to that? Do you have thoughts on how we could actually fight for the class size and ratios that our students need and deserve? And it's another big question, I know, but all right. Nobody wants to answer the million dollar question right now. Adam, you want to take? Joe, you yeah. could talk about the, the pledge. That we could. We you could talk about the pledge too. One thing we developed at, at UMass Boston, right? Actually, we have some of the, the co-authors of that pledge with us on this call right now, right? Amy, so, do you want to say a bit about it? Yeah, we just um, we wrote, wrote a pledge and um, had uh, distributed to faculty and had about 250 faculty uh, pledge not to allow students, additional students into the class above the existing course cap because we were pretty sure there was going to be a lot of pressure put on faculty members to raise their course cap, you know, add three, four students um, as a way of kind of resolving, kind of lowering costs per credit hour, which would be the goal. And we were hoping that uh, having such a pledge might increase the likelihood that rather than solving the budget problem that way, which is, a, which is kind of diluting what's a, uh, diluting education for students, instead to hire back the faculty that had been laid off and open up new sections. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, with the idea of just, I mean, in our contract, it's faculty have some say over additional students being added to their classrooms, right? So we're trying to, you know, kind of strengthen the, the resistance of faculty to allowing extra students to be dumped in their classrooms, right? As a way of basically laying off other, uh, laying off other faculty and, and degrading the, you know, the, the amount of attention that any particular student can get, right? So that was one thing we've been pushing, right? We're not quite up to a strike yet, but we are trying to kind of build a culture of resistance within, a, within our union that allows people to say no, to say no to some of the administrative, uh, you know, uh, plans that are afoot, um, you know, the kind of disaster capitalist, uh, you know, encroachment of the administration through this pandemic. Um, I would like to put out a call to everyone who's on, on the call live right now that may have a question or comment as well. We have gone a little over an hour. We started a bit late today, but we, uh, we have gone about an hour. So I would love to welcome more voices into the conversation. I think I see that, that Jen, uh, Jennifer Katie Stanton has a question that would like to bring things back to school safety. And after that, Bruce Simon has one. Uh, and I see his question, but he, perhaps he can, he can uh, speak it himself. So Jen, why don't you go and then Bruce. Okay. Well, I have been following school safety. I'm an adjunct professor at Arizona State University, Maricopa Community Colleges. I also have a daughter who is a senior in high school who is um, doing classes online. So we've been really following um, school safety issues. Um, you know, one, you know, there's been a lot of debate here in Arizona where I live. Um, most of our districts and most of our colleges are online. However, a few uh, districts and a few colleges are really pushing for face-to-face, -face, you know, really um, getting a lot of pressure from some student activists, or excuse me, parent activists who are wanting face-to-face -face classes. And I, I understand their concerns. Um, you know, we do have special need kids that have um, special considerations. 
Um, we, you know, it's not a one size fits all, but here in Arizona, you know, a pandemic is pretty severe. My own stepfather was one of the ones who wound up on a ventilator in the ICU for 30 days. Unfortunately, he did survive, has, you know, pretty severe disabilities, unfortunately. So, you know, we're taking this very seriously. So we've been following um, Queen Creek uh, Unified School District. I don't know if you've seen that in the news, but um, Queen Creek has really bowed from the pressure of some parent groups are opening face-to-face -face on Monday. They had opened the last two weeks to uh, faculty and staff, and they already have had an hour. And rather than um, following the state's guidelines from the governor, Governor Ducey, he set forth some guidelines that had to occur before schools opened, whether they're colleges or high schools, or K-12 face-to-face. They are plowing ahead because they weren't mandates. They were just suggestions. Um, so they are plowing ahead, and as it's turned out now, 80 teachers have walked off the job in Queen Creek and are refusing to return. So the district has told them that you're still required to show up on Monday until we can find a replacement, and oh, by the way, I really doubt we're going to find a replacement anytime soon. Um, so you're required. So some teachers are just calling out sick on Monday. So that's just kind of, I think we're kind of, some of these districts who are going forth with these reopening plans, like the school in Georgia, um, are really serving as guinea pigs, really, um, for the rest of the schools, unfortunately, and they're not having great results. So, you know, I, I think the issue of should we open, is, is it safe to open, is going to be district-based. Um, I think it's going to be area-based. I think that they're going to have to have guidelines that need to be met, but Right now, I think the answer for most areas and most districts, the answer is no. And, you know, unfortunately, that's going to come with heavy consequences. And I, I understand that. It's, it's, you know, it's going to be very difficult for essential workers to go to work. It's going to be difficult for um, parents, especially kids. It's a very difficult situation. But, you know, as somebody who had a parent who almost did not survive from this, I've, I've tried to educate my parents that we can overcome getting behind, we can overcome tech issues, we can overcome a less than ideal um, online environment, but we cannot overcome somebody losing a grandparent from COVID or a parent to COVID. So um, we're gonna be watching Queen Creek um, Unified School District very carefully here. I know some of our state universities, Arizona State where I teach, um, and U of A are also going back face-to-face. So those are going to be an Arizona State University. I teach in the online college, but the face-to-face, -face, the ground campus has, oh, I don't know, about 75,000 students. So that's going to be a big, um, I don't know, canary, I guess you could say, is how, how well this is going to go. Um, but, you know, again, I, I think the states are issuing guidelines for schools to open, but they're not issuing mandates. And that is the fundamental issue. So there's suggestions that can or cannot be followed. And that seems to be the, the problem. Okay, thank you for that, Jen. Uh, let's take Bruce's as well and then go back to our guests here. And I, and I do, uh, but some of Jen's comment also made me want to ask each of you to see if you can reflect a little bit on this moment as a parent too, right? I think a lot of the time, right, there's an attempt in the, in the kind of dominant media discourse to kind of pit the interests of parents who, God, they want to send their kid back to school so they, they can get on with their, their, their normality, right? Um, versus the, the teacher who's afraid for their life, right, if they're put back in, 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 a, in an unsafe environment. And you, all three of you are parents as well as 
as educators. So I'd love to hear you address that as well as the rest of, of Jen's, Jen's comment. But let's bring Bruce's into it as well. Bruce, are you there? Yes, thanks, Joe. Um, I'm a professor and a chairperson of the English department at the State University of New York at Fredonia, which if you picture Lake Erie as a diagonal, Buffalo and Erie, Pennsylvania, we're about halfway between. So it's rural, Western New York, uh, where the positivity rate's been very low, um, where uh, hospitalizations and ICU usage has been very low. Um, so if anybody could open, you know, you'd think this region would be it. Um, you know, my kids are 14 and 16 going into ninth and 11th grade. Um, it looks like their school is gonna go hybrid. But the big elephant in the room is what are the teachers unions gonna say to the reopening plans in their schools? And, and this is actually a moment uh, that ties into my question, like what is the remedy for under-resourcing where I think K to 12 unions have a lot more leverage than higher ed unions, which have to be concerned about students just not going to college, about uh, state systems deciding just to close campuses. Um, whereas with K to 12, everybody knows you know, you can't run capitalism without some system for workers' children being cared for and educated, right? So if teachers are not just refusing unsafe practices, but are refusing under-resourcing um, and threatening to strike, or if there's a call for a general strike, I I'm, I'm thinking that might be an amazing leverage point um, that we have a few weeks to, to decide on, and, and yet our system is so fragmented and you know, even within states and across states that it's hard to imagine, you know, pulling this off successfully. But there is this brief moment as schools are vetting their reopening plans by parents and by teachers, where maybe there's some kind of coalition that can emerge from that. I, I put in the question, maybe radicalize the PTA um, to make the demand to the federal government, which is sitting on its hands, uh, which, which, you know, is paralyzing states and localities, K to 12 education and higher education, uh, because nobody knows where the funding is going to come from if it's not going to come from the federal government right now. Yeah. Okay. Some great questions here from Jen and Bruce. And then I'd like to go back to our, to our panelists, I guess, if we can call you that. And, and then we'll take another round of, of questions, including uh, from Bobby Lee and Tim and Dave and a few others who have have written me uh, in the privately in the chat box. So, Adam, can I throw this one your way first, and then, or Adam, your, maybe your eyebrows told me maybe I, you thought I'd go elsewhere first. Who would like to speak to this? Uh, Amy, Fred, Adam, take a crack at it. Sure. Okay, great. Um, listen, I there's there is. Uh, <clears throat> I I think that the moment that we're in is. If we go back to, to the national response and really the global response um, uh, to what happened um, uh, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, I think that some new muscle memory has been built up amongst politically, political muscle memory has been built up uh, amongst masses of people, millions of people. And I think that some of what that, the nature of it, is that it's it's you know it's in reaction it's in reaction to these awful catastrophes and 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 crimes, you know, um, um, committed you know in this case a racist crime and I think that um, and I think that you know our unions over the many years I'll just take the New York City Union the United Federation of Teachers, right? This is not a this is a union who sat by and watched 
for 50 years as our schools became more and more and more segregated. As the resourcing within the schools flowed away from black and Latin schools and towards, you know, all different kinds of basically um, ways that that middle class, you know, uh, white and now perhaps a little bit more Asian uh, uh, folks in the city are able to sort of create like a separate elementary, middle and high school system within the city. And our union just watched it happen. That's the problem. This goes back to 1968 in Ocean Hill, Brownsville, when our union refused to sort of sign on to the idea that that, that black working class folks ought to have community control over schools in their neighborhoods. So while our union can say sort of on paper, we're doing this to make it safe for everybody, for our members and for your kids, our unions, my union in New York City does not have a deep well of trust that it can draw upon to sort of counteract the, the, the tendency to divide parents from teachers. And, 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 and I think that in, you know, it, it, in, in wealthier school districts and et cetera, there's sort of an agreement that we pay these high property taxes so that we can have these nice schools. And there's sort of a, an agreement there in, in those, in those in, in, that the unity between parents and teachers there is of a different character. So I say that to say, yes, we do need to have our unions build much deeper bonds with the parents and the students that we serve. And we need our teachers to do that. And I think that, you know, I, I referenced George Floyd to sort of start the answer because I do think that there is a different kind of politics that has become more possible. And I think that those politics are a little bit like reactive. Something happens, we have to react. So these schools open up. I'll, I'll say again, I'm gonna start very small. Inside my classroom, when I give my attendance, I do my attendance every single day, you know, I read the names of the, uh, on the list and, they, and we go down the list and the kids, you know, there's a few kids that are absent and there's always a sense of like, who are these kids? They're not here. They're not showing up. Something's not right. And, and, and asking the students, hey, do you know this one? Do you know that one? Can you like try to message them or see what's going on? You know, put them, tell them to get in touch with their counselor. Like, like having the lesson, again, I'm thinking as a teacher now, thinking very small. But having the lesson in the classroom be, just like during the George Floyd protests, there was, there was this chant when the police came out in a very scary sort of you know, riot gear and et cetera. And the chant is, who keeps us safe? We keep us safe. Who keeps us safe? We keep us safe. And to teach that idea in the classroom that we have to keep each other safe. If one of us is missing, then... that when something awful happens, as I'm sure that it will inside these schools as a result of the opening or as a result of the isolation, because I know for a fact there that I have, for instance, I have a female student whose grades collapsed in the spring um, because staying home in her super sexist household meant she was just expected to like watch her siblings and just, you know, like cook and just, that, and that was just it and her grades collapsed. And so saying, hey, keep the schools closed. 
I guess so. I guess so. And so we have to take that sort of sexist catastrophe of what happened with that young woman. And we have to make like as big of a George Floyd moment we can about that. And other teachers, you know what I mean? And other parents and, and, and it's like, I have to get to know way more parents this year and have people understand that, listen, we might have to turn up. We might have to do things differently, you know? And, 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 and to get teachers to sort of, to, to, to again, to sort of see the parents as their, as their first comrades, not just other teachers in the classroom, but to see the parents and the students as their first sort of set of, um, uh, uh, or as a very core group of, um, of, 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 you know, partners in struggle to me is, is, is the, that's the, that's the, that's the task that's in front of us because a teacher's strike that doesn't have, I mean, the Chicago teachers union has pre 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 uh, presented us a pretty decent model of what it looks like to have a pro student teacher strike. Why are you on strike? We want air conditioners for everybody. It's too hot. That works. That works. Why are you? That doesn't work. I don't think that works. And, and, I, and I think that it's going to be very difficult for us to sort of, um, you know, like our unions haven't taught us the muscle memory of being pro-student. That, that's not something our unions have been building up for the last 50 years or whatever. Uh, and so, you know, in terms of the leadership from the union, I don't have a lot of confidence that our unions nationwide can organize or have, or have the base to organize, you know, movements to keep the schools closed that, especially in places where infection rates are relatively low, that, 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 that parents and et cetera are gonna support. So it's a little bit of a, bit of a problem for us in terms of reaping what we sow with our unions and how our unions have, um, you know, I think um, um, really abdicated a lot of broader social responsibility. And now in this moment of broad social crisis, our union needs, our unions need broad social support. And, you know, our members are going to have to build it up from our classrooms, from our rosters. That's how we're going to have to build it up because it's not going to happen when our union leaders get on TV. That's just not going to cut it. So yeah. we have work to um, do. Yeah, un undoubtedly. I would love to invite you back, Adam, for another show on precisely this question of building parent, uh, teacher, and uh, teacher sure. community bo uh, bonds. And, and also perhaps to, to dive into the question of the classroom even more and pedagogically, starting small, as you say, may be the only way to, 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 to build strong, right? I mean, to really get down to a, to, to a, a depth that, where you can have a relationship that can really amount to something in the long run. Uh, and then this question of trust, right? The idea that that we need, that, that needs to be rebuilt uh, between teachers and students, teachers and parents, unions and the community. I think a, a powerful question. Uh, Amy or, or Freddie, would you like to step into some of the questions that are on the table? Yeah, uh, well, I would just say that, you know, what I've stressed to some of my colleagues is that they are going to have to be, you know, they're going to have to be tough enough to report and tell the administration, anyone there, at that point, because as I said, they're not talking about special education and needs of students and, and staff members at the schools, right? They're not, they're not reporting that. The staff members are going to have to step up and tell the principal, no, this is not safe. And when they are attacked, and they will be attacked, right, that, you know, the staff comes together and, you know, bring this, brings light 
to the situations in the school. So when I give you an example, my school was built in the 50s, right? Relatively new, built in the 50s. The ventilation, right? When they talk about ventilation, and we all look at each other like, what are they talking about? There is no ventilation, right? I mean, what it is, is it circles in the building. It circles in the building. So something happens in the basement. I think we had uh, some issue that happened in the boiler and suddenly the entire building smelled like sulfur. The boiler is buried in the basement someplace, but it was through the whole building. One of us comes in with a sniffle. One of us, we all get sick. That's what we know that already in our building. So I, I think one of the things every staff member has to be ready to do is tell somebody this is not safe. Our right. children are not safe in this instance, right? Or whatever, they're gonna have to step up. Speaking about the union, this is a moment for the union. They're gonna have to make a decision, right? Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens, right? The president of the union said when they're going back, if it's not safe, we'll see, we'll see. You know, what does that mean? Only half the staff gets cool. The city's willing, willing to sacrifice students, parents, staff. They're willing to sacrifice them. Just like they sacrifice transit workers, you know? They sacrifice transit workers in New York City. They sacrifice them, you know? So they, they're gonna, and I, and I told some of my colleagues, they're gonna sacrifice us, you know? That's it, just understand that. They're gonna sacrifice us. So you have to be willing to stand up and say, no, this, is, this particular issue is not safe. I have to take a child into the bathroom and toilet them or change their diapers. What do I, you know, I'm supposed yeah. to have PPE or whatever, you know, and I don't have it. You got to stop it and say, this is not safe and so on. So I think individual members are going to really have to step up and see yeah. what happens. Right. Individuals need to step up. And I think there's also the question of what can we do collectively to create that culture that makes it more possible for people to speak up, right? There's always a risk involved in doing so. It's never, that can never be erased completely, right, under this system. But what can we do in our classrooms? What can we do in our unions? What can we do in other organizations we're a part of, right? Through the digital mechanisms, means that we have, as well as through uh, whatever in-person uh, means we have, how can we create a culture uh, within, our, within our organizations that encourages people to speak up and, and make sure that we have their back, people's back when they do speak up, right? Otherwise, otherwise we're just sending lambs to slaughter here. Amy, let's, I mean, there's so much on the table here and I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on some of what's been said. Before we take another round of, uh, of question comments from uh, a few people. I mean, I'm really appreciating listening to um, Freddie and Adam, and also what Jennifer was talking about, you know, hearing reports back from K through 12. Uh, in a way, I feel like my kids' cohort kind of dodged a bullet because they're, they graduated. Uh, at the beginning of this crisis, there was a lot of, of kind of sympathy. It must be really hard. Graduating senior doesn't get to do this, doesn't get to do this. And but this uh, really, it's the students that are that are left and the teachers that are left. We kind of made an exit. Um, I, I'm, I heard what Adam said about parents not being on board with a strike um, or refusal to return to work. Uh, you may be right. I, I would personally be um, 
very much would trust the teachers. But I think it's, it really is through the stories and the details that the general public hears these things like, you need to take the child into the bathroom and help them toilet. I need to do this, I need to do that. It's when the details start rolling out, I think that that's when people start, it clicks. This, isn't, this is not an abstract thing. It's a really concrete, physical uh, experience. Personally, I can't imagine the schools are going to be open for very long. And um, this, the, the places where schools open before Labor Day, I guess Arizona must be one of them. Um, I think they're going to have three to four weeks advance, uh, sort of ahead of those places like in the greater Boston area where most schools open after Labor Day. Um, I think, I, I just don't think they're going to be able to contain coronavirus. I don't. And um, so we'll, we'll see. It's, it's the fact that we're sort of saying we'll see and we're just going to wait and see what happens. Yes, that's kind of like what happened with public transit workers um, and they become sac sacrificial victims of all of this. So it's very concerning. Yeah, it's, Amy reminds us it's clearly a dynamic situation, right? I mean, even if, uh, you know, certain ruling powers get their way and get people to go back in the way they want, how long that could actually last. I mean, at some point, even a, you know, bourgeois state comes up against uh, some, some reality. Uh, you can't, you know, live in the world of images forever. Uh, so much on the table here. Uh, we have a couple people who have indicated they'd like to speak, and I would like to make maybe one more call for other people who would like to speak, either with a question or a comment. I know we have many educators as well as uh, perhaps other parents and people who have a real stake in this, this fight. We all do in some way. I'd like to first call on Bobby Lee, Bobby Lee Smart, who has uh, no stranger to Shelter and Solidarity, has been a co-host and a guest on our, a number of our higher ed programs, and actually will be hosting um, a program this Saturday, the debut episode of a brand new Shelter and Solidarity spinoff, and she will be sure to bring her very cute cat. Uh, she, <laughs> so come for the cat, you know, stay for the, for the radical critique. Uh, a brand new show called Contingent Times, Contingent Times, uh, note the pun, this is a show both that is organized by and to some degree for contingent faculty, non-tenure track adjunct faculty in the higher ed system across the country, but also uh, not only about contingent faculty issues, but about the contingency of life itself in this, in this uh, moment we're living in, the way in which precarity, uncertainty, and anxiety have kind of run rampant throughout our society in, in ways that are not new, but certainly are escalated. So, so uh, Bobby Lee is not only the, the, the cute cat keeper, she's also, for those who are, uh, I don't actually know if the folks watching this on YouTube can actually see that, or if it's just the live Zoom audience that can probably see it. So uh, trust me, she had a cat. Um, but uh, Bobby Lee is the host and part of a great team of the Contingent Organizing Circle that's bringing this show to light. But uh, so that's just a little bit about Bobby Lee. That show is going to be 3 p.m. on Saturday, Eastern Standard. You can find it on Facebook um, and uh, on our Shelter and Solidarity website. We will promote it as well. But it's a new project called Contingent Times. Bobby Lee, uh, but let's welcome you into this conversation. After Bobby Lee, we'll take a comment from Tim and Dave, and then we'll go back uh, to, our, to our group. Bobby Lee, uh, what strikes you oh. about this conversation? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. That's my cat, Grayson. He is very needy. Earlier, he wanted to play fetch. He still wants attention, and I'm not giving it to him, so he's just decided to make a scene, so I apologize for that. Um, I was also watching Kristen laugh, and that had me, like, in tears, so let me get myself together. Back to this very serious topic um, that we are talking about. Um, 
with the schools reopening and like Joe said, I'm an adjunct faculty member, but also the executive director of an adjunct only or part-time faculty only union. Um, and that's a new position, I'm about three months in. So I started a new job in the middle of this pandemic. Um, and the one thing I've noticed like that a lot of people aren't talking about is we're all talking about like, how do we teach? How do we make it work? What do we do? Well, we're not talking about the fact that we like, how do I say this? Um, like maybe like the SLOs and the grades and the formal educating of them right now isn't the most important thing because a lot of them aren't even able to focus. I mean, I have a problem focusing in meetings myself. I have a problem teaching, right? And like the emotional energy that goes into that. I'm very, um, when Freddie was talking about like the faces and covering yourself with a mask um, because they need to see your face and it's, um, you know, to understand how to like do the speech. I also think it's the way that we interact as teachers, right? I'm always watching their faces. And so the second I see this look, I'm like, what happened? What did you miss? What didn't make sense, right? What's what's going on over there? Um, I'm always, now I'm kind of used to the Zoom. So when I see someone's mute go away, I'm like, oh, so-and-so wanted to talk, right? But it's trying to navigate this new social norm with them, but they're stressed out. And I had multiple students reaching out to me and they were like, I can barely show up to classes. I don't know how you expect me to learn anything right now. I don't know how you expect me to memorize anything right now, how you expect me to function right now because they're under stress. And I think um, Amy brought up like COVID, right? Like, or maybe it was, um, maybe it was Jenny, but like the idea that we can't expect them to focus for so long when a loved one dies, right? Or when somebody gets sick in their house or they have to now be the provider in their household. Um, there's just so much that's moving and I feel like we're trying to be business as usual and not just like us here, right? I'm talking like systemically, structurally, right? Everyone's like business as usual. How do we get them through this year? And it's like, I don't know that that's the most important thing for us to focus on right now. I think to Adam's point, it's like, how do you teach, like, how do you get them to understand the importance of, of life right now and of each other and getting each other through it and not relying on something bigger to, to get you through it. Um, you know, I, I created a book club with my former community college students and some of them show up and we watch a, we read a book or we watch a movie or whatever, because they were just like, we can't leave you. There's, I teach sociology courses. And so they were like, there's too much going on in the world. We can't leave you. We need someone to talk about this with. And so I'm like, okay. So now like that emotional labor that I'm doing with them to try to contextualize things. Right. And they're reaching out to you all the time. And so, I just think there's a lot of that, that that needs to be talked about more and that there's more than just like the formal educating to happen with them. Um, and also like what's good pedagogy on Zoom, right? Um, those of us who are in college know that we've got people who have been tenured for 30 years and they think that lecturing at someone for three hours is good pedagogy. Um, and then they're doing that shit on Zoom. And like, how does that work at somebody? Like how is any of this good for our students how is this good for us how is this good for our mental health like i just think it's it's that big thing and then i, I when we were talking about class size i remembered going through our last rounds of negotiations and they were talking about an online version of our classes and this was before the pandemic but they were like you know we should just make online classes like as big as the largest um lecture can be so you know i teach sociology 101 it's 60 students it is a large class um right and i know i know amy's shaking her head like what in the hell i know we have the largest class sizes in our area but then they wanted us to be able to take 150 students 
right? Because they're like, well, there's no physical barriers, so take them on. It's like, well, I still got to grade that, and you still want me to mentor that, and you still want me to create, especially in a community college, a lot of our students are first generation. They're working class students. They're students of color. They're female students, right? Like, I, that was me. I mean, other than the, I'm white, but I was a first gen student, a working class student, and female, right? And didn't know how to navigate the system, so I relied on my professors to help me figure this out. Like, what am I doing? What do I major in? How do you transfer? What does this mean? And how do I do that with 150 students in a virtual world whose faces I can't see because all the reasons that they're turning their cameras off. Um, you know, and I understand that there's perks, right? I had one student and he's a mechanic and he would just show up and every day he would put his phone there and I would just see him under the roof of a car. And so he's like working, but trying to like attend class, but he has bills to pay. So I see the perk of it, but also like how, right, they, I just, yeah, there's just so many layers and I'm wondering how other people feel about like the emotional labor of this or the stresses people under and like the mental health and then us still being like, and then you got to go to school and you got to get your grades and you got to do this. And it's like in the middle of a pandemic and a civil rights movement and a fascist regime and an economic collapse. And, right, like there's just a lot happening. So, yeah, yeah I don't yeah, know. There certainly is. And I mean, Bobby Lee, your comments really, I think, I mean, you, you, ex you speak to both the danger and the opportunity of the moment, right? The fact that it is possible to connect with students and, and have a reading group that lives on after your class, but then... But the but when but if the prim primary concern is you know grading the students and keeping the appearance of normality, then how much of that opportunity can really be seized? One thing's I'm, one thing I'm optimistic about our own union, the MTA here in Massachusetts. One of their demands right now is to suspend the MCAS for this year, right? To I mean, I think they're fighting against the MCAS, the the standardized tests, the kind of annual standard standardized tests, right? That students are forced to go through and. That's a, that's a conversation in itself, right? But they are seizing the moment to try to, to try to uh, you know, stop the MCAS for this year as part of an ongoing campaign, perhaps to roll back that regime in general, right? But I mean, how, how can we take, seize the moment, like Adam is talking about getting the students to see their bus ride, their, their train ride to school as part of their math lesson, right? How can we have that kind of liberated pedagogy when we have these authoritarian kind of quasi-fascist regimes of, that, that want us to just think of learning and, and accreditation and, and grading in this very strict numerical way, right, that doesn't allow for uh, life to flow into it, doesn't allow for writing, for, for, for discussion. Um, so the challenges and dangers of this moment. Uh, Tim, Tim, you had a question as well, and I think Dave, if he's still with us, Dave has actually fallen off the uh, Zoom, so he's, he's not there. Let's take one from Tim and then, and then bring it back to the panel. Uh, thank you, Joe. I, I want to just uh, add on to what Bobby was talking about and ask, um, ask the teachers, um, to what extent can you make your lesson plans or your study, your study questions about why are we in this mess? In other words, can you make that the topic of your, like, like um, Adam was saying, your math class, your English class, your history class? Why are we in such a mess? And in New York City, because I know two of you are teachers in the city. New York City is a city of enormous wealth. So why are, why is, why are these schools so underfinanced, under-resourced? You know, who's making these decisions? Can you put that into your lesson plan somehow, whether it's online or whether in person, and can you, can you turn that into, into a lesson for the students, and, as well as then mobilize them to attack these people who were, who were, who were cheating them? Yes. You know, uh, and 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 that that is a place where we can, you know, call on our union to defend 
what is in essence pro student, what the kids need. You know what I mean? They need to understand how we got into this awful disaster. And if there's a problem with me starting my, my school year for the first two weeks of what you, the question you've just asked, uh, Tim, that's, that's the first two weeks of teaching. And it does help me that a number of my coworkers in the history department want to do the same thing. However, for those of us as teachers, sort of, you know, we're, we're, we're pensioned workers, many of us, okay, with pretty decent benefits. And so to go into school for two whole weeks, and particularly as a math teacher or a science teacher, to sort of confront systemic and civilizational collapse and to prepare our young people that this is your future. This system that has sort of worked out for me isn't working out for us. And that is a, that is a, that is a contradiction, I think, for a lot of, of my peers. But the fact that we're doing it together helps. And even the stuff in the chat about how at the private school, teachers get to have, you know, or in the honors classes, you get to have smaller students. There are all of these pecking orders um, that they've put together, you know, inside this, this sorting mechanism of education, even amongst us as faculty and teachers, that each of us is sort of trying to claw out some little sort of space for ourselves that is livable and humane, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and we've got to sort of dispense with that. And, and, and we've got to, you know, share our lesson plans. I, I, I'm not gonna make up this whole two weeks of material. You know, I need other people to, to help and to like contribute. And, and I think that those bonds will, will prepare us for, you know, um, 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 meaningful struggle, you know, in, in the future. So um, we, we, I think that, because we're gonna be teaching no matter what, mm -hmm. you know, we're gonna have a new group of people that are assigned to us. And so, you know, um, I think we, we have to honor them and honor the, the, the life that they're in right now. Um, and I think, again, sort of pre pretending that everything is okay is kind of the status quo. That's what we do. We bring these kids into these places where their job is to compete with each other. And then we say to them, okay, guys, have at it. You know, and that has got to stop states competing with each other for 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 ventilators was a disaster competition will not get us out of this crisis so there is there is i'm i'm looking forward to 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 some parts of what's going to happen and i'm very fearful and like um not confident that I'm going to be up to the task of breaking through uh, 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 an LCD screen into someone else's life as a human, and for them and for us to have a connection that will. So I so I have a lot of trepidation about how how much is actually going to be possible once we're all sent home because I do believe I'll be in school for about twenty days tops, mm -hmm. tops, mm -hmm. you know. But that's the old college try for, you know, Wall Street imperialism, you know, like, let's get in there. Let's see if we can do it, you know, and, 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 and then and then we're going to and then and then the disarray is going to be, I think, uh, a, a, a huge challenge to, to overcome. Yeah. So, you know, um, shelter and solidarity, I, I, it, it would seem 
uh, does it has a long a, a longer shelf life than than <laughs> than than perhaps we might hope for. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, we're planning to keep it going. I think we've been discussing. You know, once I'm teaching four courses, uh, you know, a week, four classes a week, uh, might need to go bi-weekly. But we're going to keep this thing going. And actually, one thing we thought about is that this show itself can be a resource for certain classes. I mean, the, the, for those who don't know, all of our content, we've had about 20 shows now without a break every week are at shelterinsolidarity.org. And, and as well as on YouTube, we have, a, we have a YouTube channel and a podcast channel for those who prefer, and I mean those students as well, who prefer to listen to longer form conversations rather than to watch off of the screen. I'm sure we're not the only ones getting zoomed out these days. Uh, burned out on, on, on sitting and looking at a screen. But I do hope that some of the shows we've recorded can be resources for, uh, for teachers. We don't need to recreate the content all the time. If there's, you know, we've done shows on a lot of these pressing themes and had some really great speakers, including yourselves today, as well as, you know, various kind of published experts on many topics. And, and I, I, one of our hopes is to, is to make these resources available to educators and, you know, both in school and out of school the different ways that education and critical thinking can happen. So I hope that those who are teachers or who are in educational spaces will consider, you know, using some of what we've generated in, in that way. Uh, and it's free because we do believe in cooperation and mutual support. Uh, we are not looking to compete, although, you know, the more viewers, the better, but that's because we're in this together. Uh, Amy and, uh, and Freddie, I actually liked it. We, we are getting close to two hours. So I, I'm going to actually ask you for kind of closing comments. You can respond to what's been said but also uh, maybe some closing words. And if Adam, who just spoke, but if you also have some parting words for us uh, that we can, we can leave on, that would, be, that would be wonderful. And then we'll just, we'll, we'll wrap up and talk about next week's show. Amy? Yeah, so, um, you know, speaking to the issue of curriculum, uh, my, the classes I taught were actually very appropriate for kind of, even, even last semester, I did change directions a bit and was able to incorporate some of what was going on with the pandemic into my lessons. For example, one of my classes I is biological anthropology, so I do a unit on genetics, so it tied in very well. Um, and so uh, depending on the subject matter and, and sort of what pressures are on a faculty member to deliver certain content, I think it does depend. Uh, it does depend. But um, whenever possible, I think that students really appreciate that kind of, those kinds of connections being made to their, um, their lived experiences. So I don't have any closing, uh, <laughs> closing comments to say other than that I really, um, I know some of you, I feel fortunate that again, that I am not going to be going into a classroom um, and not, you know, I feel at least safe in that respect, but I, I realize that a bunch of you guys are, so I just, um, really wish you well and I hope that somehow we can hear back from you and and hear how it goes um so yeah yeah that's great I would I would double that and say you know Adam and Freddie I, I see Amy in other contexts but I would love to have you back uh whether it's as a an audience member or respondent to conversations or as guests again and we can check in you know after you know once the develop, development for the fall crystallizes a little bit um, we'd love to, you know, I won't make you answer right now on camera, but I do see someone nodding. So, so let's make it happen. Freddie, um, closing comments or responses to what's been said? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, again, thanks for having me uh, in, this, uh, in this discussion. You know, I've been 
saying a lot of negative things. So let me end with a positive thing. Um, when you teach in my district, right, but and in individual schools or programs, there is no way one teacher can do teach these students by herself or himself. It must be a collective effort. So, teacher, a student doesn't like me because I have gray hair. I'm too old. I'll come out and retire. I said, all right, I'm gonna fix you one day. But they they don't like me because of the way I look, the way I dress. So I have to reach that student through another staff member, counselor, para, paraprofessional, another teacher, and so on, the parent. And through this period since the schools closed and we went remote, it was amazing because the staff taught together. We taught, we taught a group of students together. The students were not coming to your individual class or responding individually to your class. So what we did was we had these Google groups. I don't know how one of the young teachers set it up and we had these Google groups. And we weren't talking about our different, uh, uh, like math or science or anything. We were talking about how the students were dealing with everything. So we had the student who was very high functioning um, during uh, the school year, right? He was gonna be, you know, believe it or not, our, our school tries to be as normal, normal or regular as possible. In other words, we offer the students can graduate if they pass their regions and so on. And some do, not a lot, but a handful do. So our valedictorian just disappeared. And it took all of us to find him and get him back, at least to make sure he was okay, number one. And then number two, to try and engage him in uh, online learning. He refused to do it, right? Uh, so that was a collective effort. And I think that's what really, uh, I think, uh, Tim's question and what the other panelists were saying, and Amy and, and uh, Adam were saying, is that things are not going to be the same, right? That uh, we're going to have to approach this differently and teach differently. So I think it's going to be, it's going to have to be, take that collective effort. And it's, that did happen at my school. I must say that really happened and really you know, we were able to connect with a lot of students. And I thought that was a very positive thing. And I was very glad to see it. Um, so that's basically what I want to say that this, to end it up on a somewhat positive note, that we don't know where it's going to go. We had a final meeting with staff members to respond to the demonstrations, you know, George Floyd, and different demonstrations around the city and staff rooms were angry. And one of the points we tried to make together, myself and another staff member were, listen, we've got to teach our students to fight and not fight each other. Our students can fight and some of them really love it, right? But they're used to fighting each other. We have to teach them to fight against these forces that are really crushing them, right? And have them see that, you know, they have enemies and it's not necessarily each other or the, you know, a different gang member or a different person from a different neighborhood that it is from, uh, you know, the, 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 these forces that are really, really crushing them. So that was my one point as I left, you know, the school, I told them, teach our students how to fight against this oppressive system. Right. Yeah, amen to that. And, uh, and, you know, thank goodness for people that are learning to, learning, uh, to change the, the context for learning, right? to learn, learn from the situation and come together and, and fight together in, in, in new ways. And, and we need to share what we learn. 
right? We need to share what we learn so that we, we're not always reinventing the wheel, right? We, the, the best practices of how to learn and fight, you know, we need to share those lessons and, and keep in touch. And, and uh, you know, this show is one resource for doing that. I hope you'll join us next week. Adam, do you have a final word you'd like to leave this with? Sure, I've got a word. Um, my father uh, told me this is the most important or beautiful word in the English language, communism. Communism, that's the word. If capitalism is a social order where the needs of capital come first, and that's what we're looking at, and that's what's collapsing all around us, and capital is wealth invested to create more wealth, then communism is a social order where the needs of the commune come first. And what is the commune? The commune is the group of people who have decided to share. That's my word. Yeah. We need to start thinking about that word again. And that word yeah. has not disappeared. All right. That's right. No, I just heard it. I heard it and I'll say it. You know, communism sounds, sounds, sounds right to me. And there's <laughs> no time like the present. We don't know how much time we have left we on this know. planet if we don't find a way to a, a world of sharing and compassion where we take care of each other. And that's not just cheap phraseology, but that's really built into the, the undergirding of the society. So, yo, uh, great having you all on here today. I hope to have some of you back next week, yeah. 7 p.m. on Thursday, Shelter right. and Solidarity. I'd like to thank our, our guests today, uh, Adam Stevens, uh, Freddie Cole, and Amy Todd. I'd like to thank my co-producers, Tim Sheard, Saran Mudliar, Kira Mudliar, Linda Liu, uh, my partner in all things, my comrade and colleague. Uh, also thank our great sponsors of this program, Hardball Press, a small press. Check them out online and on Facebook and everywhere. They produce a number of children's, radical children's literature, working class stories. Read them, share them, write for them. Uh, also the journal Socialism and Democracy, a research journal for transformative activists. Uh, several of us are on the board there. We'd love to have your contributions as well as your readership. You can find out uh, check out our blog online uh, as well as sdonline.org for the website. We also are sponsored by Encuentro Cinco, otherwise known as E5, an organizing hub in downtown Boston, and by the Community Church of Boston, our newest co-sponsor that has come on board just recently. Uh, did I, I don't think I forgot anybody. Uh, just thank you all for supporting the show. We're about 20 weeks in and we're going strong and it's all because of you. So please, please get involved. We are an all-volunteer uh, collective project. So hope to see you next week. Spread the word and be safe, but be strong. There's really, I think one thing we heard today, there's no risk-free solution or option within this crisis we're in. So let's, let's choose our risks widely, wisely and, and, and together, a see around solidarity to all the teachers, the students and the parents that are struggling with these contradictions. You are not alone and we'll be stronger. We're only going to ever solve it if we come together. So see you next week.